This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We orbit a star just like the points of light in the night sky, and that means we are one way that the cosmos knows itself. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, make sure to follow me on Twitter for when to call. And as always, send us your questions and comments to askbillnye.com. And once again, my friends, I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, dear friend, Aww. Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Today we are joined by Massachusetts Institute of Technology student Charlotte Minsky. Greetings, Charlotte. Welcome to Science Rules. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it, you're, it's, we're going to have the time of our terrestrial lives. Now, Charlotte, you spent a lot of time looking for, dare I say it, exoplanets. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. Planets beyond our solar system. And uh, you are a part of the TESS mission, right? Yes. Tell us about TESS. So TESS stands for the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Well, sure. <laughs> so what's transiting? What are we surveying and whose satellite? So transiting refers to the fact that the exoplanets we're searching for are going in front of their stars. So we're calling that transiting in front of their stars with respect to us. So we're looking at these stars, and the planets are orbiting around those stars between us and the star. So it has to be oriented. Everybody, this is kind of amazingly cool. It has to be a planet going between us and the star. Like if you imagine looking down on a record player or a Lazy Susan, that won't work. Exactly. It has to be looking edge on at the Lazy Susan. It has to be just right. And it can be a little bit tilted, but not very much. So how did you get into this? You're 21 years old? Yeah. So and you're running something? <laughs> I am an Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences major at MIT. And I took a class about exoplanets with Sarah Seeger, who's the deputy science director for the mission. 
Yeah, she, and she's an amazing researcher herself. She's absolutely incredible. And that class really inspired me because, first of all, I had not had a female faculty. I had not had a female professor Ever? until that moment at wow. MIT. Wow. And I hadn't realized it, but I I was kind of lost. I didn't know exactly what I was interested in, what I wanted to do with my life. And I hadn't realized that part of that was because I really couldn't see a future for myself. I didn't have any role models. And so when I walked into that Can, class— When you say you couldn't see a future for yourself—like you couldn't think of employment, you mean? I just couldn't picture myself in academia or uh. being a research scientist. I didn't think that I had what it takes. What didn't you think you had? I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, which is, I like to say, applied physics, because I like tinkering, dinking around with bicycles, the occasional airplane. Uh, but you didn't see any role. Your world was academia. Is that what you're saying? A little bit. I mean, I was open to different possibilities, but I just didn't have any real role models that looked like the kind of person I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah. So as a freshman... I did research with a graduate student on looking for a theorized ninth planet that we think might exist, but we're not sure if it does. Uh, out beyond the orbit of Neptune? Yes. So it was during that experience that I really fell in love with astronomy and planetary science. That was as a freshman, and that got me hooked. So did you own a telescope as a kid, your family no. or anything? Have you seen Saturn through a telescope? I have now. And it changed your life a little bit? It was pretty cool. It looks like Saturn. That's the most amazing thing. You look at Saturn through the telescope, and almost every time I've shown somebody, they go around front to make sure there's not like a little thing a painted, painted on the front of the <laughs> yeah. telescope because it looks just like the pictures of Saturn. So, I, he, so here you are. You got Sarah Sager. Yeah. So this is my third year at MIT. I walk into a class with Sarah Sager, See. and I just suddenly felt like there was somebody who I wanted to be like. And it was How incredible. How cool is this, people? Yeah. Which I think speaks to the importance of having these types of role models in all fields of science and, and beyond science. That just made such a huge impact on me. And I was so inspired throughout that whole class. And I just thought that the content was so interesting. What was, the, what was it you all studied? What did you learn? So the class was an intro to everything exoplanets, how you find them, what they're like, uh, how you characterize them. And I had never really thought about this, that there are worlds outside our solar system. There are thousands and thousands of other worlds. And that's just amazing to me. So, so what do you do exactly? Here is this transiting satellite. What does it do? So the transiting exoplanet survey Oh, yeah, the transiting exoplanets, and you have we're a satellite gonna, we, we, we that surveys. We can just call it TESS. TESS. Yeah. You got a, planets that, we, that happen to be oriented uh, favorably are passing between us and stars. Yes. You're observing them with this amazing spacecraft. So you're right. essentially, you're like seeing the shadows of these planets. Sort of. So imagine that you're looking at a, a planet and a star. You're looking at this system super, super far away. It's so far away. How far away is it? They're so far away that you can't differentiate between the planet and the star. You can't 
really see them. The planet's tiny compared yeah. with a star, right? Exactly. right? The star itself is a dot. Exactly. And the planet is a, like a dot moving in front of a dot. The whole thing is a dot. I mean, there are other ways that we can actually separate them. That's a whole other discussion. But the whole thing is a dot. And so what you do is you look at how bright that dot is. So when the planet is not between the star and you, it's shi- the star is shining at full brightness. But when the planet goes in front of the star, it's blocking out a little bit of the brightness of the star. A tiny, tiny little A tiny, little tiny right. bit. So, so, so transit is like a mini eclipse. It's, it's less exactly. than an eclipse. And you're not really looking at the shadow, Corey, if I may. You're looking at the silhouette. Right, right. Yeah. You're looking at the silhouette. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And so then when the planet finishes transiting and it's out from in front of the star, again, you have the star's full brightness again. So if you're just looking at this dot and recording how bright it is over time, what you see is a dip in the brightness of the star. And that's what we're looking for with this satellite is those dips in brightness. Do you also look for the wobble of the star? That's a different method of detection. And that's used to confirm the planets because just the transit alone isn't enough to say for certain it's a planet. So that can't be done with tests, but that's done by other observatories and telescopes around the world in this amazing community effort to work with tests to confirm that the planets are really planets. Okay. Now, before we get into that whole effort, what I want to know is, so here you are in your class with Sarah Seeger, and she's being inspiring. You're getting inspired. It's this cool topic that to me is like one of the coolest topics you could be studying. And I'm just picturing at the end of the class, everybody's lining up saying, hey, how do I get to work with you? How did you get to be the person who is working on tests? So during the semester, we had one class where she had us basically practice looking at data from tests and figuring out whether what we were looking at was exoplanets or other types of errors. Now, when you say data, is it columns of numbers? No. So what we're looking at is primarily that that graph. that graph of brightness that I talked about, which we call a light curve. Sure. And so she had us practice looking at those and mentioned that if we were interested in getting involved, uh, that we could do so. And then at the very end of the semester, she asked us all to go around the room. Um, so I was, I think, the only one who said exoplanets specifically is what I want to work on. And there, there were grad students in the class who were already in exoplanets, but of the undergrads, I was the only one who said that. And so then I went up to her at the end and I, I said, you know, you mentioned that it might be possible to get involved in tests. How, how could I do that? And she just introduced me to the person who was running this uh, program of looking at the planet candidates and figuring out what they were. And that's how I got involved. Now, how, and how many people are in that program? I think it's about 30 or 40. I don't have the exact number. Off are the are you the youngest head. one? Yes. <laughs> She's 21, everybody. And so how many planets, exoplanets, do you, that have you identified light curves of? Wow. A dozen? 10,000? I have looked at the light curves of a few hundred, a few hundred things that might be planets. Mm-hmm. Only some of those actually are planets. Okay. So here we found a planet. You have the light uh, from the star passing through the planet's atmosphere, I presume. You talk about small. The planet is – the star is a dot. 
the planet's a dot. The atmosphere is a thin skin on a dot in front of a dot. So what 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 happens now? <laughs> so are you you're talking about how we figure out what's in the atmosphere? Yeah, and by we I mean you. Yeah. Right. The real question is we're we're sort of jumping ahead. Now you found these these possible planets they get confirmed. We know that they're we're pretty sure they're real planets. How do you learn anything about them? How do you know what they actually what you're actually looking at? Yeah. So to start, I just want to clarify. TESS is one part of this sequence of lots of different people, instruments working together. So TESS is doing this initial detection of the transit. You need other types of methods and other telescopes to figure out what's actually going on with the planet. How massive is it? What's in its atmosphere? So the first thing that we do is in order to confirm the planet, we use this method that you mentioned of looking at how the star wobbles. And what that is, is the planet, as it's orbiting the star, actually pulls on the star gravitationally. It pulls it towards it because the star has gravity, but the planet also has gravity. And that shifts the star back and forth towards and away from us, which actually squeezes and stretches the light that's coming from the star. So... So like if it were a sound, it'd be going... It's a Doppler shift of light from the star. Exactly. How massive a planet do we need for that? If we were out, how far would we be out, Corey, Charlotte? 30 light years. Sure. Sure, that's, we, a, that's a nice place to and be. And we looked back at our sun. Would we detect Jupiter? Would we detect Mercury? Yes. I, we can do it with, with Earth-sized planets. It's really sensitive. Like, like to, to find Jupiter, to you, it, Jupiter takes 12 years to go around, so you have to wait 12 years to get one wobble. Uh, so part of it is that you're doing work that requires a lot of waiting. Well, the nice thing about exoplanets is that there's a huge variety of types of planets, everything you could possibly imagine. And so if you just look at our solar system, you see to, in the middle closer to our sun, these rocky planets that are orbiting relatively fast. You know, our our planet is every year. And then as you go out, there's these big gassy planets that take much longer to orbit. But one of the amazing things about exoplanets is that it shows us that our solar system is not necessarily representative and that there's every possible configuration of orbit and size and mass possible. And so you actually have Jupiter-sized planets that are orbiting closer than Earth to their stars. So you're seeing, that, you're seeing that nature is very creative. Exactly. I mean, the whole thing sounds so cool. So here we were looking, we found a planet, let's say, around a distant, distant star. What are we looking for? So it depends on what you... What are you? What are you into? Sure. Yeah. What's your thing? I'm really interested in exoplanet atmospheres. And... That, why, why, why? Yeah, it, first of all, I just think it's incredible that we can study atmospheres in the first place. I mean, think about it. We have these dots in the sky, tens, hundreds of light years away. It's already amazing that we can detect the planet. And as you said, the atmosphere is just this tiny envelope around it. So the fact that we can figure out what's in that tiny gassy envelope is mind-blowing to me. And I just think it's so cool that we can do that. And we do it with a spacecraft. Yes. Which is orbiting the earth and the sun. And so everything is moving and that stuff out there is moving. It's all moving. And yet we can point this instrument at this dot in the sky, distant dot in the sky, long enough to observe its atmosphere. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, no, and I'm I'm remembering because I've I've been I've been doing this stuff for a while. Oh, he's I, been so, in... so yeah, some years ago. Um, I wrote about Sarah Seeger when she was first coming up with this idea of being able to study the atmospheres around planets far, far away around distant stars, and it was considered a difficult and, pro- and probably impossible type of research to do. People thought. It's a great idea, but you're never going to be able to pull it off. And now you were studying with the person who basically founded the field of exoplanet atmospheres, and you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great things about exoplanets is it's such a new, exciting, and fast-moving field that these things that we didn't think were possible 20 years ago are now totally commonplace. So what do you hope – what are you looking for? See, what I think of – if you looked at the Earth, I'd expect – if you had this – complimentary gizmo on another world, aliens, the otherworldians, they would detect water vapor. They would detect some oxygen, nitrogen, I presume. What would you, uh, what are you looking for? So this is talking about how to detect life, which certainly is not the only thing that you can look for in an atmosphere. There's oh, lots no, of reasons no, to study no, planets. Oh, no, no, sure. Heck, anybody, yeah. I'm kidding. So uh, <laughs> go ahead. What do you hope to find? What do you look for? The main thing that we can figure out is the composition of different gases. Imagine that your planet has an atmosphere. It's made of two types of gas, let's say a really blue gas and a really pink gas. But it has a lot of the blue gas, not much of the pink gas. If you're looking at that planet or looking at that star in blue light, remember that transit dip, that dip in brightness I was telling you about? If the atmosphere is super blue, it's absorbing a lot of blue light, then that dip of brightness is going to be deeper in the blue light. Okay. Oh, so it's like the silhouette would be a different size depending on what color you're looking at. Exactly. Whereas in the pink light, where there's not that much gas absorbing, the silhouette would be smaller, that dip in brightness is shallower. So what we do, the main way to study atmospheres, because again, there's a lot of different ways to do all of these things, is... We look at that dip of brightness in a bunch of different colors, a bunch of different wavelengths, and we see the difference between the dip in brightness, and that tells us the difference between the effective planet size, so the size of that silhouette. And that tells us that there's more absorption happening in one wavelength than another. And essentially, what that, that gives us what we call a transmission spectrum, which is a spectrum of the light that's transmitted through the atmosphere. And that tells us what types of gases are, are in the atmosphere absorbing light. So that's so cool. So you can basically – you can essentially tune your telescope to look for different gases around a planet. Yeah. There's different gases that absorb primarily in different wavelengths. So depending on what you focus on, you have more likelihood of detecting different gases. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Science Rules is back. Um, so, you know what? It's, I think it's time to... Hit the phones. Hit the phones. Throw some even bigger questions at you because we've got callers on the line. Are you ready for some callers? Sounds great. Okay. Vincent. Vincent, are you out there? Yeah, I am, Bill. How's it going? Well, now that we're talking with you, it's going fabulously. Uh, you have a question well, for great. Charlotte. Yes, I do. Um, my question is, how important is it at this stage in our advancement to protect exoplanets from uh, sent probes and radio data, especially if they're in the Goldilocks zone of potentially Earth-like planets. Uh, I've been very interested in exoplanets since uh, reading four or five years back about uh, a planet called Volpe, which was uh, labeled as four times Earth's size, which was in a habitable zone for its size. And telemetry data had suggested it had compositions of water, oxygen, and um, so, other hydrocarbons. Vincent, you're concerned that we, Earthlings, are affecting the environments of distant worlds. Is that right? Or if there was life there that uh, perhaps making them aware of us. Um, is, is that something... That's a good or a bad thing or... No, yeah, yeah. So, Charlotte, you only receive light, right? You don't send any electromagnetic energy out to these other worlds. Exactly. We're, we're looking at it like a camera is taking a picture. Right. So we're not affecting these distant worlds. But do you know people who beam radio transmissions at these distant worlds and so on? No is a fine answer. No. No, I don't know anybody who does that. So, Vincent, do you see that... Your concern is cool, but like when you take a picture, despite what um, myths about people who had never seen cameras might say, I don't think we affect other planets. That light or electromagnetic energy is coming our way anyway. You see what I mean, Vincent? Right. It's light all over the place. Right. Right. I mean, there. I mean, there are people who who talk about beaming signals to other planets, um, and even with that, there's. Is usually uh, that there's a lot of discussion and concern about that before a message goes out about you know, sort of who speaks for the Earth and and you know the ethics of of doing this. So uh, I, I don't think that any of these uh, recent exoplanets have been have been targeted yet. But um, but yeah, if, if we were if we were talking about beaming messages to them, I could I could see wanting to have a conversation about that first. But uh, just by looking, I don't think we're we're not doing any harm. This is this is closer to you know you know. Take only pictures, leave leave only footprints. Exactly. Uh, I think it's yeah. yeah right. But you're not even leave, you're not even leaving footprints. Right. Right. Yes. Just taking pictures. Right. So, Vincent, what gases do you want to find? Oh, I'd love to find some oxygen. Um, I'd uh, love to find some water vapor. Uh, maybe a lot of nitrogen. Those are like, good ones. Those I like all those. Like, but for me, Vincent, this is great. Hang on. For me, it's methane. Right? I knew you were going to go to methane. Well, who wouldn't? Yep. Natural gas, like, comes out of a stove. Well, there's no yeah. magical one gas. It's really about looking for each gas 
in the context of what else is happening in the atmosphere. And so you want to look, if you're looking for life, you're looking for gases that it doesn't make sense to be sustained in an atmosphere considering what other gases are there. Because there's lots of different atmospheres. So like if you found methane and oxygen, because they're not stable together, if you found those things together, you know, something is is messing with that planet. Maybe it's life. Things like that, right. So, Corey, if you miss uh, – Charlotte, if you mix methane and oxygen, what do you get? And a match? Well, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. If you have enough energy. Yeah. No, no, but, but uh, methane isn't isn't stable. I mean, so that's what that's what you're talking about is you're looking for for an atmosphere that isn't stable unless something like life keeps renewing it. Right. Exactly. Um, can you find oxygen? Can you find nitrogen? Can you find water? Are those things you've been looking for yet, a, or are those too hard? Well, they're pretty difficult to find on Earth-sized planets right now because the signatures are so small. But we're hoping that with Future telescopes that are more powerful will have a better chance. What gases do you find? Some strong ones are uh, helium. Helium? Helium. Because when we, as Earthlings, uh, when we go looking for helium in the Earth's atmosphere, it's a tiny, 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 tiny amount. Right? Certainly. But if you think about Ooh. Jupiter, there's a ton. Yeah, right. So well, it's it's big, hot, gassy planets of like tons, that. Probably, yeah. Right. So, uh, Vincent, you've got us uh, you got us off on a good foot here. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Now, speaking of Jupiter and detecting, let's say, hi- uh, hydrogen or helium in the Jupiter Jovian atmosphere. So, Chris, are you out there? I am. How are you? You have a question about Pluto for Charlotte. I do. Bring it on. Yeah my my question was is um, I'm trying to think out a word. Do we know if if we do know why Pluto jumped out of alignment? And if not, are there theories? So the, the question is, why is Pluto out of alignment? And the word uh, alignment, let's yeah. talk, there's uh, the traditional planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, are all in this, almost in the same plane, like on a cosmic tabletop. But Pluto right. is not. Right. I think the first question, I, I mean, Charlotte, you're looking at other solar systems or other planetary systems. Um it's the same thing true there, where you see the planets all, they all sort of, they're all in the same plane as if they were kind of like dots along a, the side of a, of a vinyl album table. or a CD or for a the frisbee. Most, for the most part, yes, because that comes from when the planets are forming, and they're all forming out of the same spinning disk of gas and dust. And so they tend to be roughly in the same plane. So they're all sort of around the equator of their stars? Yes, and there could be variations, of course, but mm-hmm. that is common. So this is in Chris. This is uh, yeah. a result of if you have a bunch of gas, <clears throat> a bunch of atoms in space, they have mutual gravity, right, Charlotte? But they're not going to come together or pull on each other quite exactly evenly. And so what has you can mathematically show that they resolve themselves usually into a disk. The, uh, the it's all not, about the angular momentum, man. The not quite evenness resolves itself into a spinning disk, and then whirlpools within the disk create the planets. It's all kind of amazingly right. amazing. But with that said, Charlotte, Pluto is different, right? Yeah, so I'm not sure about what specifically happened with Pluto, but in general, uh, Things like gravitational effects from different objects pulling on each other can pull things out of alignment or even stars passing by. Um, so it's it's often some sort of disruption to the system that will cause things to go out of alignment. 
Okay. My understanding is our good friend Pluto uh, was created by uh, much farther from the sun. And uh, it didn't form at exactly the same time and by the, exactly the same – from uh, the same part of the disk that created the traditional planets. And so it is now uh, what we generally call one of the Kuiper belt or Kuiper belt objects. These are objects so far from the sun that they haven't been pulled into the plane. And uh, there's zillions of them. Can you observe a Pluto-style dwarf planet around another star? So that's an area of – that's at the front edge right now of research. There have been – some tenuous detections of... Uh, What's a tenuous detection? Things that we think might be something, but we can't really confirm it yet. Because it takes years and years of observing the same thing? Or same it takes system. different methods, or it's just a weak signal, things like that. Um, so the last I heard was that we had some a possibility of exo cometary like objects, but I don't know of any confirmed extrasolar objects that aren't planets. So uh, Andrew from Alabama left us a question. I guess he had to get on with his life. He's probably driving. Who knows? But he I'm, asked, I'm, I'm glad he's not, uh, he's not driving and uh, calling podcasts at the same time. That's probably smart. It'd be shocking. Uh, what he asks, and this is, uh, I think we call this a leading question. Why is every planet that's discovered a gas giant? But that's not exactly true, exactly. It's is not it? exactly true, but it's definitely true that a lot more of the planets that we have discovered are gas giants. Because it's, Tell us about gas giants. Yeah, so gas giants are things like Jupiter or Saturn, these big, massive planets that have really huge atmospheres. And they're so much easier to detect because they're big, and so they block out more of their star's light. So Now, they don't quite have surfaces either, Jupiter and Saturn. Is that right? Well, they have cores. They're very center. But then they have these thick, thick, thick atmospheres. And the pressure just gets higher and higher and higher as you go down towards the center. So it's— So can you detect uh, a gas giant um, from its nominal surface toward its core? Does the electromagnetic energy, not light, but some other— X-ray oh, you mean, or can, something. Can you sort of see through, through it? See through the uh, well, a I Jovian. I can't see through Jupiter. Can you closet? see through Jupiter? No, I'm a, but I'm not an X-ray. <laughs> I'm not a cosmic ray. Oh, Billy, you saw yourself short. <laughs> uh, I uh, I'm not that energetic. Bill, please, are you are you just like fishing for compliments? You're full of energy. <laughs> so, can you see through a gas giant with uh, the TESS instruments? So the TESS instruments are not capable of looking for anything to do with the atmospheres at all. They're just looking for that dip in brightness. Just that sounds to... like a very, very careful version of no. Exactly. <laughs> no. So, but with other instruments, we can look at their atmospheres. So how do we know that it's a gas giant, not a giant, giant, hugely giant rock? We know that anything over a certain size has to be a gas giant by figuring out what the mass of those planets are by using other methods that detect the mass. And That's so, like, like, the, like the wobble method you were mentioning? Exactly. So if you know the size of the planet and the mass of the planet, you can figure out the density. And then you can figure out that if it were if it were rock, it would be way more dense than it is. So it has to be gas. Right, because there's so much more hydrogen and helium out there than so there is rocky stuff. So do you guys realize stuff. what we're talking about? We're just... We're, we're, talking, the, we're spitballing about we're planets about other stars. We're the 21st century acting like this is a day at the office. Uh, but wait, have Charlotte, you, Charlotte, 
Hang on, Corey. Yes. Help me out here. Have you pondered what it might mean to find evidence of living things in a distant, distant atmosphere? For me, the big question is, how common is life? And we just don't know. Either it's really common and a lot of the conditions that that lead to life will end up having life on them, or it's very rare. Even if you have a perfect, beautiful planet that's just right for life, you don't have life. And for me, that's the big question. That's the big unknown factor. So if we find life, then we can figure out how common life is. And I think that, to me, has more of an impact than just the knowledge that there's life out there. So is the test instrument or the suite of instruments on test capable of detecting life no. or detecting? Because I think it would be profound. I think it would change the course of human history. I've said this many times that if we found evidence of life on another world, whatever that would be, methane from distant, distant, distant microbes. Or cows, space cows. Or space cows. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, but those, they're planet cows. Or they're, uh, yeah, exoplanet cows. they're exoplanet cows. My, my, you're entirely correct, Bill. <laughs> EPCs, yeah. exoplanet cows. I mean, we're space humans because we are space humans. Yeah. Yes, especially if you met my old boss. <laughs> Am I right? So, and of course, if if there is life on one of those other planets, and they're looking at us, we're uh, we're exoplanet humans, yeah. right? And we're, I'm sure, extremophiles from their point of view. So, I just think it would be profound. So, this mission test costs about two hundred million dollars, and that was spent over what ten years, fifteen years, probably about that. Considering what we spend our intellect or how we apply our intellect and treasure, it is a bargain. <laughs> and so. Uh, you, Charlotte, may be part of making a profound discovery that's akin to the discoveries of Galileo or Copernicus. I mean, well, that's a heck of a thing. I hope so someday. Yeah. You're an undergraduate now, right? Yes. At this well-known institution, MIT. Uh, what are you going to do over the next year? What are you going to do over the next five years? Do you have a master plan? Because you didn't get revved up on exoplanets till what, last year? Year before last? Yeah, which is amazing to think about because now I'm just – I, I'm totally into them. But um, so this year I'm finishing up at MIT. And then next year I'll actually be doing a master's in the history and philosophy of science and medicine at Cambridge. And wow. then I plan to return to the U.S. after that to get a Ph.D. in planetary science, studying exoplanets, planetary atmospheres, this kind of stuff. Wow. Whenever I talk about, you know, exploring Mars or exoplanets, uh, sooner or later somebody says, oh, well, Whenever we send people there, can we, you know, can we colonize? Can we, you know, can we colonize? Uh, can we, can we, can ah, we leave? Can we leave Earth? No, they. This. I'm oh, saying this is, say this is yeah. what this is yeah. the this is the wording. This is the expression people say. Can we colonize this world? Can we escape from Earth and like build a better place and get away from our troubles? Do you get questions like that? And what do you say? Absolutely. And there's a couple aspects to that. So one is I think that it's really important that we focus on making sure that we are proper stewards of Earth first. Because take even Mars. It's so close to us. It's in the same same solar system. It's right down the planetary street. Exactly. And it's sort of viewed as the, the next best thing or the, the best planet to The day to put is almost the same on. length. Right. But even Mars is not nearly as hospitable to life as the worst case scenario You would for die Earth. in less than a second on Mars, everybody. There's no air for us. 
It's crazy making. We're not going to go live on Mars. We're not going to set up. We're not going to explode nuclear weapons on the North Pole of Mars and create an atmosphere and Spock and his kids are going to run around in a ferny rainforest. Like, what are you people talkings about? So to me, studying other planets actually is more of a motivation to make sure that we are taking proper care of this one. And looking at other planets' atmospheres doesn't make me think we should try to go to other ones instead of ours. It makes me think that we really need to be concerned about climate change and that we really need to focus on Earth. The way I think of it as a guy of a certain age, uh, people, uh, Carl Sagan and Jim Pollock and a couple other people wrote a paper about uh, nuclear winter. If you set off all these nuclear weapons on the same afternoon, you'd have so much debris in the air or above the air that uh, the earth would cool off. And then in my lifetime, people discovered that the ancient dinosaurs were almost certainly killed by an asteroid impact, which created, in a sense, many of the same effects. Uh, tremendous amount of debris above the atmosphere cools the place off. And, and then James Hansen, who uh, was at NASA for many years, he's retired now, discovered the strong, strong greenhouse effect on Venus. And so for me, climate change here on Earth was discovered on other worlds by studying other worlds. Mm, right. And so you're coming of an age, coming of age now where this where climate change is talked about in scientific circles con constantly uh, in political circles maybe not so much are what's your view of the future here on earth for humans based on your exploration of exoplanets? I think mm. studying other planets in general has just made me realize how special Earth is. And I know that maybe it's foolish to say that because, of course, it's special for us because we specifically evolved on this climate. And so it's, you know, we are the way we are because we make sense for this climate. But it's made me realize how much we should treasure this planet. And specifically, you mentioned Venus. Venus is this planet that probably was more Earth-like in the past and then had this runaway greenhouse effect and now is completely inhospitable to life. I mean, a spacecraft could barely survive on it for half an hour. And so that just shows me what can happen and how imperative it is to make sure, first of all, that we do the right thing here, but also that we use exoplanets and other planetary atmospheres to understand the different ways that atmospheres can behave and change all of a sudden. Science Rules will be right back. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Science Rules. So, Charlotte, Bill, we have a caller on the line. We have Brian. Brian, Brian, Brian take it. And where are you calling from? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm calling from North Carolina, but I usually am in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
Oh, that's that's a nice place. I hear there's some good schools there. <laughs> yeah, I live like a half mile from MIT. Okay, cool. But anyway, and look, he's fine. So yeah. Uh, so my question is the way you know the way we're looking for planets now will wobble in the star, a little reduction in light as it crosses across the star, and then we're looking at the spectrum uh, for different gas signatures, like you said. Are we doing anything to make Earth more visible? Like if someone's looking at our us. How do they know there's life here? That's a cool question. That yeah. That's a cool question. So there's not anything that we are doing to make Earth more visible through these methods. But theoretically... Hold it. Hold it. Just a second. We are cranking out CO2 like crazy and industrial pollutants. Oh, and I see also, what you're saying. Yeah. Well, right. Yes. As as humans, we are creating biosignatures. Absolutely. Right. We're... we're yeah, we're we're adding to the to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and there are people who talk about looking for specifically for alien technology by looking for like technological chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons and things that that we humans kind of shoot all over carbon the place. Carbon monoxide, I think, largely. So, we're, but we're not doing it purposefully, right? For- Ryan, do you do you have one you'd suggest uh, a beacon? No, but but as you mentioned that, I imagine if they looked at us over the course of. 30 or 40 years and saw significant change that might indicate to other people or other beings. But, but yeah, I, guess I don't the, know. I don't I have the, anything off the top of my head. I guess the second part of the question is, so with the kind of studies you're doing now, if you were, you know, 30 light years away looking back at Earth, would you be able to tell that Earth has life on it? Not with the current... Brian, that was like the greatest question ever. Thank you, man. Uh, carry on. Uh, Corey. Bill. Can you observe the sky nearby? Uh, it is kind of dark. I see some clouds. Oh, oh, lightning, lightning round, Bill. Yes, that's right. So, uh, Charlotte, it is time for the lightning round where we ask you questions and you just answer very quickly off the top of your head, intuitively full of passion. Okay. Charlotte, uh, Minsky. Yes. What is your favorite planet? HD 189733B. Excellent what? choice. No, uh, is, is why it... do you love it so? Well, I'm studying it, and it's blue. It's a hot Jupiter. We know a lot about it. There's a lot of exciting stuff to be done with it. And okay. you prefer that to the Earth. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, uh, is there a planet that you just hate that just, like, vexes you or bothers you or you can blow it up? You would? This is going to anger some people, but Mer- Mercury really gets to me. It, it should be cool, but it just it's just a rock. You know, Mercury is also chaotic, and on a billion-year time scale, there has a chance of uh, going out of its orbit and either colliding with Earth or causing Venus to hit Earth. So See, that's... It's, it's a problem. <laughs> what is your prediction, your boldest prediction, for what we might find uh, in the realm of exoplanets in the next 100 years? Hundred years. I'm hoping for some confirmed biosignatures and either an uh, incredibly high probability of life or nothing at all, which would be really interesting too. What do you think the prospects are for finding intelligent life? Obviously, not through biosignatures, but other oh, means. Oh man, I'm not sure. Um, Can I put you down as a maybe? Yeah, I'll put me down a, as a, a maybe. Skeptical maybe. Skeptical, skeptical maybe. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to stargaze? My hometown is pretty nice, Greenfield, Mass. It's a quiet, small, good view. Okay, final question for you. Since you do a lot of communication, what is one thing you wish everybody understood about astronomy? Well— It could be a big thing. Astronomy is is not this this 
discipline that's somehow isolated from the rest of the tangible world, that it has grown out of, it is co-produced by by history, by society, and that that is something that we, we really need to be reflexive about. I just think astronomy is part of everyone's general education. We orbit a star just like the points of light in the night sky, and that means we are one way that the cosmos knows itself. You should, pa- Bill, you should patent that. Which <laughs> freaks me out. I just, it's just an amazing thing. No, when you realize that we're just kind of, we're clinging to a rock, the rock's going around the star, there are all these other stars with their own and rocks going around it. And we can understand it. And we can understand it. What in it's the world? crazy. Worlds. Uh, so, uh, if you've been listening, and I hope you have, I'm Bill Nye. And I'm still Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the exploration of distant planets out there in the cosmos, science Science rules. rules. So uh, today our guest has been Charlotte Minsky, uh, exoplanet specialist looking for all sorts of things in the distant cosmos. So you out there, my listening friends, if you'd like uh, to rate Science Rules, please take a moment to review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out helps us learn what other people learn about the show. So be sure to look at uh, my socials, as the kids call it, for when to call in. I'm at Bill Nye on on everything. On the the, the booking of face, on the tweeting, on the the gramming of instant. Yes. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, many of you may recall this technology, give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Now, Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and Corey S. Powell himself. Yeah. Our engineer today is once again been Casey Halford, who's also mixed this episode and composed our fabulous original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell, who's out there somewhere, and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher, where, dare I say it, Science rules. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.